I have a question for you. What are you doing to support women to leadership positions in your organization? From all of the work I have done with both individuals and organizations, I have compiled my learnings on this issue in my new guide, 15 Ways to Support Women in Leadership. You can download it for free at happieratwork.ie forward slash resources. The guide addresses not only the individual responsibility of us as women looking to get to those leadership positions, but also the challenge of creating a supportive environment. A reminder of that address, happieratwork.ie forward slash resources. You're listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. Through a combination of solo episodes and interviews with some incredible guests, we bring you the insights and practical tips to create happier working environments for you and your teams. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague and leaving a rating or review on your favorite platform. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm so delighted you decided to tune in today. And I have a really exciting episode for you today. I am joined by Joe O'Connor, who's the co-founder of the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence. So we have a really interesting chat about work time reduction generally, what you need to do in order to make it a reality in your organization. So some really, really interesting insights from the session today. And I really, really hope you enjoy it. As always, I will be putting together a synopsis of some of the key points that were covered during today's episode at the end. So if you want some key takeaways, do stay tuned for that as a reminder of some of the key points that we talk about. As always, I'll be posting across social media about today's episode and you can find all of my links on the website happieratwork.ie and I look forward to interacting with you there and hearing what you thought of today's episode. Joe, you're welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm really thrilled to have you as my guest today. And I'm excited for what this conversation is going to hold. Do you want to introduce yourself for listeners, a little bit of a flavor of who you are and how you got to where you are today? Sure. It's great to be here, Aoife. Thanks for the invitation. So, yep, my name is Joe O'Connor. I'm originally from Ireland, but currently based in Canada, in Toronto. I'm the director and co-founder of the Work Time Reduction Center of Excellence, which is based here. We support organizations to move to shorter working weeks. I've been interested in the work time reduction space since around 2018. Back then, I was involved in a research project on the Irish public sector, which was looking at work-life balance and a whole host of related issues. And we included some stuff on the four-day work week and the shorter work week because I had been following some of the initial trials that were taking place in Iceland, in Denmark, in New Zealand, an area I was interested in. And one of the, the outcomes that really has stuck with me through my career since from that was the huge volume of working parents, mostly women, who were already working four-day weeks or reduced-hour work weeks, but for an equivalent reduction in salary. But often their experience was that their expectations in the job, their responsibilities, and the output that they were producing was the same as it was when they were working five days. So that got me interested in this concept of Parkinson's law, this idea that a task expands to fill the time available for its completion. And certainly, you know, my experience would suggest that that really does hold true in an awful lot of, of modern organizations. So after that, I, I designed the first ever pilot program and research project on a four-day week in Ireland early in 2021, which was really just responding to a huge increase in demand and interest in this from leaders and organizations largely driven by the pandemic, new ways of working, 
into the recruitment market at the time, which was particularly competitive. Um, and I spent most of 21 and 22 as the CEO of Four Day Week Global, where I was leading the, the global trials of the Four Day Week, which have got quite a bit of, of, uh, of, of coverage and interest um, in, in recent years. Yeah, they absolutely have. And, you know, as I, as I mentioned, and if people haven't listened already, there are some related podcast episodes if you want to go and check them out. Uh, Andrew Barnes and Charlotte Lockhart in particular from the four day week. So I've interviewed them previously on the podcast and also Lassa Reingans of the five hour day. So if you haven't uh, already checked those out, definitely check those out. Joe, I want to pick up on this concept of Parkinson's law. I'm hearing so much more about it recently. This concept that if you have X amount of time to complete a task, then you're going to use up all of that time, basically. And something I talk to my clients a lot about is setting really clear expectations around the quality of work, but also the amount of time that it should take. Any any thoughts around that or what's driving it or what are you seeing out there? Absolutely. So I, I think what we're seeing with companies that successfully move to reduced hour work weeks, because often this feels very counterintuitive for people. This idea that you know, you read the headlines and these companies are reporting their revenue has gone up or their productivity has gone up, but in less time. And, you know, it, it feels almost scarcely believable for, for some people. But when you actually look underneath the hood at what's happening in these organizations, by introducing a kind of a constraint around time, by making time a scarce resource, it's actually creating this almost pressure on the system that forces people to really rethink the way they're doing their work the systems, the processes, and it's a forcing function to really change work practices and streamline operations. And I think almost the, the idea of the shorter work week is almost the inverse of Parkinson's law. It's the idea that if you actually, you know, create that constraint, one of the big things that I've heard from a lot of leaders that have, have done this and done it successfully, it's almost that the shorter working week hasn't necessarily solved all their problems. It surfaced a lot of their problems. You know, a lot of the little quiet, unspoken frustrations that people have have been forced up to the, to the surface. A lot of the, the, the maybe the risks or the um, weaknesses within their, their systems and processes have bubbled up. And that's as a result of kind of creating that positive tension within an organization where you give people this incentive of if you can get the work done in less time then you get this really life-changing, transformative, incredible benefit at the end of it. And people have been able to find a way to make that to make that happen. Mm, yeah, I love that. And I like the idea that it's it's not that it's created problems, it's just surfaced problems that already existed, presumably, in the organization and just rethinking how we're actually doing it. And would you say there are any specific criteria for patients that can do this successfully? I would say the criteria are probably more based around culture and more based around their options than they are about size or about industry. You know, we've certainly seen for smaller businesses, there are certain things that are easier for them when it comes to adopting shorter work weeks tends to be much less functional complexity in terms of lots of different teams and departments, different locations doing different kinds of work, tends to be less decision-making bureaucracy. So often once the CEO or the owner or the founder is bought into this, they can happen pretty quickly. But then there are weaknesses in terms of, you know, for small companies, maybe they have less resource to actually cover different shifts and to devise rosters to make sure they can maintain service coverage across five days. Whereas for bigger companies, 
that's much less of a challenge and there's maybe more capacity in the system to do that. And the same goes for industry. You know, there are certainly, I would say there are industries for whom this might be a little bit more straightforward. I think when it comes to knowledge work, this idea that we've got 20% in the form of unnecessary overlong meetings, poor use of technology, distraction and interruption in the workday, I think that holds true to a bridge extent. I think when we're talking about other forms of work like manufacturing, like retail, it probably requires a greater level of innovation and a greater level of redesign, but it doesn't mean that it's not possible. And we've seen lots of organizations in those sectors find ways to make this work. It just might look somewhat different to the model that would work for, for a knowledge-based organization. Mm, yeah, no, that's, it's really interesting. What, what I, what my mind is kind of keep coming back to is this idea of job design and actually defining what work looks like to begin with, if that hasn't already been done. And, and in a lot of cases, I think, and I'm seeing this more and more as well uh, with clients, and I've seen it posted recently on, on LinkedIn, that essentially these are all the tasks that need to be done, but there's no clarity around what does that actually mean? You know, what does done look like? What's the quality and how much time should that actually take? So it could be a job description. And, and someone said to me recently that job descriptions should be updated on a yearly basis to just to check in and see, does it all still make sense? And I, I'm kind of thinking back to my corporate days and the job descriptions that we had, which were also used as job ads, by the way, which, you know, I didn't know any better. So I was still doing that at the time as well. But it, what kind of importance do you think that the, the overall job design or thinking about the work that needs to get done, like how important is that? I think when you talk about the employee benefit in this, most of the focus is on the benefit outside of work. So the improved work-life integration, the extra time that people are given back, you know, to use as they wish with family, caring and community, learning new hobbies and endeavors. And that is critically important and a huge, huge value for people. But the bit that's often overlooked is the impact while there is work. And, and often the experience of employees who go through the process of moving to a shorter working week, they find an improved sense of job quality largely because the process forces them to either remove or minimize low value or no value adding activity. And sometimes, you know, we've definitely seen organizations where they have people who feel that they're doing something that isn't contributing much to moving the needle. And it's just always the way that things have been done. And actually, it might not be a case that they need to stop doing that or they need to do less of that. Sometimes it's turned out that actually that has been very critical work, but it hasn't been explained properly to them the value that it's actually creating and generating. So if you're a manager, you walk into your team on a Friday morning and you say, from next week on, we're going to become 20% more efficient. I'm not sure that you would engender the same response as you get where, you know, upfront, you share this benefit in a really meaningful way with people. And then you offer them this challenge of, you know, can you rethink the way that you work in order to do it better and to do it more efficiently? And one of the big fears that often companies have going into this is if we kind of reduce time, are the, the things that are going to get trimmed, things like team working and collaboration and, you know, the social side of work. But actually, often we see the very opposite because other forms of flexible working, and I'd love to get into this a little bit more, yeah. other forms of flexible working are often very individualized. They're very discretionary. You know, if you tell people you can work where you want, you can work when you want, as long as you get the work done, 
that sounds lovely on the surface, but often people's experience is that the benefit is very uneven. You know, whether you can actually gain the benefit from that might depend on how your manager interprets the policy, the dynamics within your team, career progression dynamics, gender. I think with the shorter work week, the benefit is so universal and so evenly and fairly distributed that you get a collective response. You don't get an individual response. You know, no one person can change the way their team meets. No one person can change the way their team communicates. So because of the collective nature of this, even though people are working together less from a time perspective, we often see this experience that actually the sense of collaboration and team working improves. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I'd love to go back to this idea that it's about challenging, rethinking the way we work. So maybe it's not up to managers and leaders to decide what needs to get done, but they form part of explaining what the key priorities. And I think it's really important to understand what the priorities are in the organization, but that the individual kind of takes responsibility for their own work and cutting out the extra stuff that they feel doesn't really need to be done. Would that be the case? Yeah, I think you've nailed it with that description. You know, the way we talk about it is leaders need to set the direction of travel. They need to, to have very, very clearly communicated, well understood success metrics because the absolute worst thing you can do is test something like this and you end up abandoning it and yeah. saying it's failure and people don't know why or how it's failed. Mm. So I think that's a key role for leaders, but the most detail oriented CEO in the world does not know the day to day intricacies of each of their employees' jobs well enough to tell them how they need to redesign it. So. That's why I mentioned earlier that, that really that the determinant as to whether you're going to be successful for this is much more about culture than the type of organization you are or the size of organization you are, because, you know, it works best in organizations that have this bottom up decision making process rather than command and control and organizations that already have a strong sense of trust, of collective responsibility, because you try to do something like this purely for the potential branding benefits or as a recruitment or retention tool, but it's being built on shaky foundations of fundamental culture issues, mm. people will often respond to this, not with super engagement, but with actually fear and skepticism of why you're doing it, how you're doing it. You know, is this going to mean that we're going to have to work harder, longer, faster, more intensively? Whereas actually, if you look at the success story, often the success is built not on organizational speed up, but as you mentioned earlier, on, on organizational redesign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And I think sometimes people confuse the four day week, generally speaking, as working your normal 37 and a half, 40 hours over four days. But actually what you're talking about, and exactly as the you describe in your in your company, is work time reduction. So it's about actually reducing the time by finding efficiencies, by cutting out the things that we don't need, by understanding that idea of Parkinson's law, that if you give people two hours to do something and it should only really take half an hour, then you're you're trimming that hour and a half out of their working week. Systematizing things, automating AI, I think it's really going to benefit like this. I love the idea that it's about culture and um, one thing, again, that, that kind of sprung to mind when you were talking about that is, and 
a well-known organization that I won't mention today, but they normally give 10% of their working week to people. And and someone was telling me the story of, of how they joined this organization. And when they joined, they're like, oh, you know, they were afraid to ask, I think, for the first few months in case, you know, they're like, I, I didn't just join because of that, but I don't, and I don't want to ask. So eventually when it came around to time, they felt comfortable enough asking about, well, how about this, you know, this time when we can work on our own projects, our own passion projects. And they were told, oh yeah, that's called Saturday. You know, so they built up this reputation and idea that it's, you know, come and work here because the culture is so great and you get time to work on things that that really matter to you. And we give you this additional time then to work on your kind of passion areas, if you like, for want of a better word. And when they got in there, then actually that turned out to be kind of a myth. Like it's something that they put out there to the market. And it just sprang to mind whether it's culture washing or green washing or whatever it might be, the way that organizations present themselves from a branding perspective and the reality of what is the work in that organization can at times be very different. Yeah. And we see this with unlimited paid time off here in North America. It's more common here, but I've seen it work in some smaller organizations where managers can kind of carefully monitor and manage it. And I've seen it work in larger organizations where it's complementing a whole suite of other flexibility policies. But often this idea of offering unlimited holidays in practice, when you actually drill down into who's using it, you know, how much of it are they using? It's built on pretty shaky foundations, you know? So I, I definitely think that the collectivism and the universality of the shorter working week is a huge virtue of the process. And just on the point you made earlier about compressed versus reduced, mm. you know, I've seen some organizations, mostly in areas like manufacturing, areas like hospitality, where actually the physical presence and availability of the employee is very closely linked to the value that they're delivering. I've yeah. seen some scenarios like that where moving to, you know, four 10 hour days, for example, is broadly beneficial for the organization and for its people. My view is that in knowledge work, that is not a progressive approach. Mm. I think if you look at the research around this, the idea that someone's ninth or 10th hour in a, in a creative or knowledge-based role on a, on a Wednesday mm. is going to be as productive or more productive than their first or second hour it used to be on a Friday, I think is probably a myth. And I also think that, that in terms of burnout, I'm not persuaded that four 10-hour days is an improved well-being position versus five eight-hour days in those kinds of jobs. The other thing is, from an organizational perspective, you know, you are losing the incentive effect. You are losing the kind of forcing function of creating that scarce resource around the hours in the week and forcing people to rethink and relook at their work week differently. If you're just kind of moving around the deck chairs on the Titanic and restructuring the same number of hours, you're probably not going to have that same effect. This is it. I'd love to pick up on the point on unlimited time off because I always thought, wow, what a fantastic benefit. And you can take as many holidays as you want. But I think to your point, you didn't kind of go into too much detail on it, but it could be the case that people are not actually utilizing it or it's the high performers want to be seen as the high performers. They're not taking advantage of it. And more and more of what I'm hearing from the HR side is if someone leaves an organization, then they don't need to pay any additional benefit because the, the the benefit is unlimited and therefore normally if you leave you get pay, you get paid in the pro rata of holidays that you haven't taken in that year but if you're on unlimited holidays then 
you know that doesn't that doesn't apply so you kind of miss out on that if you leave the organization within that within that year yeah i mean i i see it in the same sphere as those kind of ultra flexibility policies where it's kind of very unstructured work where you want where you want i see it in the same sphere as that in that you know it, it can be hugely dependent on the culture of your team the way your team is managed it can depend on how junior you are in the organization. As I said, dynamics around career progression, gender, the type of person you are. There's a huge variance in how the benefit is actually accessed. Yeah. And if you look at the overall data around, has this actually had a downward or upward pressure on the amount of time off people are taking? Often on average, it's a downward. Maybe yeah. some people are taking more. There's some really interesting work by um, Professor He Jung Shun out of the University of Kent, Flexibility Paradox, which kind of touches on this, where often policies which are flexibility on the face of it, once you actually dig a little bit deeper, it, it's actually not playing out like that in practice. And, you know, I think from an organizational perspective, you can create infrastructure that provides a benefit to employees in a very fair way, but also get the benefit of creating this really sharp focus on the way people are working. I don't think you get that if you say you can kind of go on holidays whenever you want. You know, where is the incentive to change structurally the way you operate there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also just from what you're saying, if you can go on holidays whenever you want, then when are you actually going to go on holidays? Whereas if you have 30 days to take, 20 days to take, or some, you know, in the States, I think it's often 10 days in a year, it kind of puts pressure on you to take those days as opposed to thinking I can take holidays whenever I want. It's more of a planned approach. I think if you have a limited amount, you need to be careful about when you take them. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think this whole question around how we structure flexibility and what we mean by flexibility is going to become really, really important as we design the workplaces of the future. And, and I think you touched on it with that example of how an organization describes themselves. You know, you probably need to, to, to look a little further into the detail um, as to, to how that's actually lived within the organization. We see that with shorter work weeks. I mean, being honest with you, we see it with shorter work weeks. Like our, our advice is always, this can't be treated like your entitlement to sick leave, or it can't be treated like your entitlement to parental leave. Yeah. There's a company in, in Australia called Inventium where they describe it as the gift of the fifth. And effectively, they estimate three in every four weeks, people get to take their schedule day off in full without any kind of work-related distraction. And one in every four weeks, they might have to do an hour. They might have to do two hours because there's a, an urgent deadline, an emergency, you know, a, a particularly high demand period in terms of seasonality. And I think that the reality for most organizations like this is a flexible model. One other example is that actually the CEO of Atom Bank in the UK talked about how you need to build a culture where the boundaries are clearly understood, where if his regulator phones him and says, I want to meet you for a coffee on a Friday and that's a scheduled day off, he's taking that meeting the same way that he would if he was asked to do it on a Saturday when he was working a five-day week. But that doesn't mean that you allow your managers to send email and Slack messages to their teams that could wait until Monday if it's their scheduled day off. So I think that sometimes you need to kind of find your way a little bit like that with that and you need to get the, the, the balance right. But yeah, I think I've seen examples of companies go too far with that where, you know, you have the day off, but you need to be on call within 30 minutes, in which case you probably can't even pick up your kids from school. But I think 
I've also seen companies do the extreme where, you know, you're completely uncontact- uncontactable under any circumstances. And actually the policy could end up unraveling or might need to be changed because often that might be taking it to too much of an extreme. So the balance is important. I think just getting it right, it's probably tricky and, and quite a balance and quite nuanced for the company that you're working with. I'd love to expand the conversation a little bit in relation to flexibility, generally speaking, and and what you're talking about is structured flexibility. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mentioned before we started recording that I spent about four months working remotely in Tenerife, completely unstructured. That's me kind of left to my own devices and figuring things out for myself because I work for myself. But I'd love to get your thoughts around flexibility generally. What is structured versus unstructured? And what are the trends that you're seeing and what are the challenges that you see when it comes to flexibility generally? Yeah, well, I mean, I think structured versus unstructured really comes down to, you know, what's stated in policy as an entitlement or as a benefit and what's stated as as a discretionary allowance, which, um, you know, is really left up to individual teams to interpret or individual employees to, to make decisions around. And I think that this kind of this pressure and this challenge is, is we're seeing this in terms of the attitude of a lot of leaders to return to the office, because what they actually are looking for is more structure. And, you know, you can have remote first environments that are very structured. You can have hybrid environments that are very structured. But I think, you know, often this is a failing of systems and processes. This is a scenario whereby, you know, they're effectively saying, Unless we have people in front of us, we don't feel we can create a structure where people can thrive and be productive. Mm. And I think a lot of, a lot of the draw towards, you know, hybrid two days in, two days out is placing structure around something that these organizations have effectively failed to do when people have been fully remote. I don't think that that's a damning indictment of the concept of remote work because it is absolutely clear that you can create remote work environments which have very clear targets, which are very clear systems and processes, which have a really strong collaboration at their at their core. But some organizations have not succeeded in terms of putting that in place and they're reverting back to what they know. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to to pick up on that point in a second, but I want to come back to this idea of the forced return to office and having those systems and processes in place. And something that occurred to me as you were talking is this prior to the pandemic, it could be the case that they didn't have those necessary systems and processes in, in place to get really good productive work done. Working in that remote environment threw up these issues to the fore. And now that there's an opportunity to come back and bring people back to the office, they're kind of jumping at that opportunity to bring people back because they think that going back to the way things were is is the answer, but it's not necessarily the answer. What it, what this has done is exposed, as you said earlier, the failure of the systems and processes that they have to begin with. And now is really the time to rethink how we work, how we design work and what work means and how work gets done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting in that most of the companies I worked with in 2021 and 2022 were interested in the shorter working week primarily because they were leaders in every other form of flexibility. They were probably one of the first to offer remote, to offer other forms of flexible working, to really embrace hybrid in the early days of the pandemic. So they saw this as a natural, logical 
next step and a progression. You know, the kinds of things that shorter working weeks rely on in order to, to be successful. So things like really clear quality measurement, asynchronous communications, they're the same kinds of things that tend to make remote work successful. I'm a huge believer in outcomes-based work. So I'm not advocating for that, but I think it's a reality that we're seeing thrown up now by the market that the kinds of companies and the kinds of leaders that you're seeing attracted to shorter working weeks might not be necessarily the same profile as what we would have seen a couple of years ago. That's really interesting. Uh, I love the, your description of it. They're using it as a carrot, as a benefit, if you like. And I think I commented about remote working as uh, a benefit and someone corrected me and said, it's not a benefit, it's a working model. It's a type of model that you're using to run the, the business, essentially, rather than it being a perk that you give to employees as a way to incentivize them to do something. So the same probably applies in this situation. It's more of a working model, but they're using this as an incentive for employees to have an extra day off, you know, and, and to have them working in the office four days a week. Yeah, I mean, I think that potentially is harking back to those fundamental flaws of the, the companies who maybe haven't got this right or, and are now reverting back to type. Well, one of the other things that I wanted to pick up on was this idea of outcomes-based work. Can we talk about that that as a concept? Because I think a lot of people don't really fully understand what it is. I think there's such a focus, even still, and if I if I think of myself, I'm five years out of corporate now but I'm it's in so ingrained in us that we work nine till five and we're not working those hours that you know we need to somehow fill the gaps to work those hours and seem busy and this shift in mindset from a time-based productivity to outcomes-based work I think is a, is a huge shift in mentality do you want to talk us through maybe that process of shifting the mindset or what outcomes-based work really means Sure. And you've just jogged my memory about what I wanted to say about remote work, which is for too many organizations, they looked at this like a temporary benefit, like a perk. Whereas when we were talking about the future of work and, and flexibility during large parts of the pandemic, it was so focused on location of work, both from an employee and an employer perspective, rather than using the opportunity that remote work presented to fundamentally change the way that we work. I think that's one of the benefits of the process of moving to a shorter working week is that it forces that kind of rethinking of the way that we work. It forces a real shift onto outcomes-based measuring results. And one of the things that, that, that we always try and reassure people about is that moving to a shorter working week is not about doing the same work in less time. It's about figuring out how can we achieve the same level of, of outputs or outcomes with fewer or with more efficient inputs. And I think that's at the core of the process. And, and, and often organizations that moved to remote work were really just trying to do the same things that they were doing in the office while working from home. And I think that was a huge missed opportunity. You're absolutely right. I think it, it gave us the opportunity to shift how we think about work. And I think for the large part, it did. And it's just that it's taking a while to get the wheels running in a lot of cases. And then you see the publicity, the media shouting about the CEOs who are demanding return to office when that's not the reality for necessarily everyone. But there's kind of fear mongering then, oh, all these big companies are demanding a return to the office, then we should do that as well. Or leaders who have that fear mindset that like, well, people can't be as productive at home or people can't get the same amount of work rather than thinking how how do we use this to our advantage and how do we you know going back to your earlier point joe of 
using it as an attraction tool. So how do we attract the better talent and how do we retain the best talent by offering these, not as a, a benefit, but as a way, this is the way we work, but rethinking internally how work gets done as well. Yeah, and I think we need to name one of the elephants in the room as well, which is this almost legacy sunk cost of real estate in New York City. The mayor of New York has called for people to go back to the office en masse, not for anything to do with productivity, not for anything to do with employee well-being, but because there is a huge economic cost of the city of the fact that people are no longer commuting in and out, people are no longer using local services. And you have this great big thing around people's necks of, you know, these spaces that particularly in sectors like tech and, and other parts of knowledge work were very heavily invested in pre-pandemic. So I, I think that that is a factor which is at play for sure around the idea of, well, if we want to measure people, they need to be in front of us. If we want to engender collaboration, they need to be physically together. We know these things aren't true, but often these things are easier for people to fall back on. And you're right, the pendulum has swung a little bit back in the other direction in terms of the economy, the recruitment markets, the media coverage around this. It's presented an opportunity to revert to type and to take that, you know, I would say probably easier option in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to come back to this idea then of the outcomes-based work and the shift in mindset that's required. Because like I say, I'm five years gone from my corporate life now and I'm still thinking I'm I still have that idea of I should work from nine until five if I don't have that much on then I need to find something to do in that time do you want to talk us through that process and what outcomes-based work actually means yeah I, I think it's a huge shift in mindset you know th this idea that we talk about of the Pareto principle the idea that 20 percent of your work tends to generate 80 percent of your outcome or of your value I, I think in practice you almost need to, to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. So this idea that, you know, if you're working a, a four-day week, you kind of shut down the computer at five o'clock on Thursday and everything's done and you dance out of the room, out into the, hopefully the sunshine, if it's the summer, you know, that's not the reality. There's an element of accepting that not everything can be perfect. You know, you're not going to have the healthiest to-do list or email inbox all the time. So people who who in order to feel productive need to feel I've done every task and I've done every task 100% or every single client that has been in contact with me, I've responded to them in an hour. Often we need to train people that it's not a zero-sum game around, can we move to a shorter working week and maintain the exact same level of customer service you know, and meet all of the expectations as they stand today with all of our clients? Because once you actually drill down into it, Sometimes at the heart of their inefficiency is the fact that they're allowing themselves to get distracted from really high value work because the client has said jump and they've said how high and they're doing their task switching, flow switching, immediately responding to every email and Slack message. So actually, this isn't about doing everything like we used to in less time. There is an element of resetting boundaries and resetting expectations. What are the times when you can expect an immediate response? And what are the times when actually being that responsive is undermining your own focus and productivity to get that kind of outcome-based work done? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And especially when it comes to clients, and I've come from an agency background where we're dealing with clients all the time, and I'm seeing a real shift 
in those kind of agency-based relationships more towards partnerships. And I know certainly when I was working in agencies, it was very much command and control, like this is what we want without any much thought, even though what they're paying in agency fees was much higher than what they would be paying for someone quite junior on the team to be doing that work themselves. So they were kind of getting us to do the donkey work, for want of a better word, without much thought for anything else that, that was kind of required. So it's really interesting because we do tend to have this mentality, especially in client service work, where if someone asks for something, it needs to be done. But I I, I love this thought that it's about, as you said, resetting boundaries and resetting expectations and having communication policies in place. And and something I've done with my emails is I've had an office message on. So for anyone who emails me, I try and manage expectations and say, I check my emails twice a day and don't expect an immediate response. And I'm thinking, I haven't done it yet, of writing a blog post about like why it's important to have those types of boundaries and why it's better if people don't have their emails constantly open all the time. I don't tend to use Slack, so that's not an issue, but I can understand in a work context if people are, are constantly getting messages popping up on their screen saying, you need to look at this. And I, I was reading something there the other week about how long it takes to get back into a task if you've been distracted from doing it. And it's 27 minutes it takes you to get back into the flow of doing what it was that you were doing. So I like to yeah. try and put boundaries and protect my time when I'm doing that deep work that needs to be done. I mean, on one hand, and you mentioned AI earlier, on one hand, as a practitioner in this space, I'm obviously very excited about the developments in, in, in AI because lots of companies I've worked with who have moved to shorter work weeks have automated certain tasks, have used technology to streamline certain administrative processes as part of their, their move to reduce hours. And that was two or three years ago. And the scope now with chat GPT, auto GPT, and the new technologies and tools that are coming on stream, it seems almost every week, you know, the scope for that kind of efficiency to be found is so much greater. But on the flip side, I would say I have more examples of companies using less technology rather than more to make a shorter working week work. So actually using their existing technology more mindfully can go a whole way in finding that unlocked potential and unlocked capacity within their organization. One really common misstep we see organizations make in the early stages of planning a move to, to a shorter work week is they take all of the inefficiency that's currently, you know, sitting in their meetings. So they take all of these kind of unnecessary meetings, meetings that go on too long, meetings that are, are badly planned. They do a diary detox. They kind of tear that out. And then they basically shift all of that efficiency over into Slack or into another communications tool rather than actually addressing the root cause of, is there stuff that we're, we shouldn't be doing at all? Is there stuff that we're doing inefficiently? So I think rethinking the way that you use technology and knowledge work is a really, a really critical fundamental feature of this. I love that. That's a really interesting concept, I think. So using it more mindfully. So rather than adding to the number of things that you have to kind of monitor and keep an eye on, it's about reducing that or even putting rules around it. But I love the additional point of, It's not just about looking at your meetings, taking those unnecessary meetings and and like you say, transition them into another channel like Slack, but rather thinking, does this really need to happen at all? And why is it that we're creating these additional meetings and where is it coming from? And and are they efficiently run? And do they have an agenda? Do I, as an individual, really need to be at this meeting? Are there other people from my team or is there one person from my team who could go in my place? You know, coming back to this, the RASI model as well. So 
do I need to just be consulted about this or informed about this rather than actually being responsible for going along to the meeting? Yeah. And you mentioned agency work there. And I just might like to make a quick point about that. We start with this diagnostic process with organizations. When they come to us, they're interested in exploring the shorter work week. It's almost like a feasibility study, which looks at, you know, their readiness to move to a shorter work week. Sometimes companies are, they might be right for it culturally, but they're not ready operationally. What are the main challenges, barriers, issues that they need to overcome? And then we make an assessment of different work time reduction models. So is it a universal day off? Is it a roster that maintains coverage across five days? Is it a more incremental approach starting with nine day fortnight, half day Friday? But when we get to the end of that process, if the issues are operational, I'm generally much happier because there are very few scenarios where with the right commitment to operational excellence that you can't overcome those kinds of hurdles. They tend to be much easier and much quicker to address than cultural barriers. And I think agency work and law are two areas where I think it's knowledge work at the end of the day. There is no reason operationally why those industries can't become more efficient and produce the same outcomes in less time. Often the challenges are very much based around tradition and based around set. And, you know, you mentioned that kind of hustle culture, the client jumps how high, that's very, very prevalent in a lot of agencies. Mm-hmm. And I think the same goes with, with law firms. You know, there's a real culture around not just busyness, but there can be sometimes a, a crossover between professional and personal identity in terms of the way people regard themselves. Mm-hmm. So that can often be a, a big challenge to overcome. But that said, these are also industries that really struggle at times with retention, really Mm. struggle with unsustainable workloads, really struggle with burnout. And therefore, I think the opportunity to do things differently in those industries is very much there. Definitely, I see the opportunity. I suppose that for me, the challenge for, say, law and accountancy firms in particular is the billing So they operate on this billing model where it's billable hours. And so the more hours they work, the more they can bill to clients. Like that's my understanding for the barrier. They get them in the end on the billable hours because they're billing more hours than there are actually in the day for the number of people who work in the organization or whatever it was. It's in your interest, I think, to work more hours on that client so you can bill more. Whereas if you would do it by quality or by project base or thinking of alternative ways to bill clients, then it serves best for everyone, I think. Yeah. And I mean, you know, for most of us that have dealt with marketing agencies and law firms, whether it's in our professional lives or our personal lives, often what you're interested in is the value of what they're delivering. You know, how much closer are they getting me to resolving my case? How much closer are they getting me to achieving my marketing objectives? So I think that 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 detachment has already happened in the mind of the client. So why not take it a step further and actually translate that to we're delivering a certain value. This is, this is the value of that, of that project, which I think allows then you to create an environment, which probably gives you a better chance to not burn your people out and to hang on to them. Absolutely. You won't get any arguments from me around that. Joe, the question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, what does being happier at work mean to you? I think this is probably a boring kind of wonky answer, but I would say when I think about the times at work where I've been at my happiest and the times of work where I've been my unhappiest, it tends to come back to control. You know, if I feel like I don't have control over, you know, 
the work that I'm doing, if things are kind of spiraling, if my to-do list is kind of getting getting endless, if I feel like there's a detachment between my purpose and the kind of work that I'm doing. So, you know, if I'm really focused and day to day, I know, okay, I'm doing this because it's driving towards this objective that I'm trying to trying to, to meet. That tends to be a time when I'm very satisfied in my work. Whereas if you've got kind of shifting priorities where you're just firefighting, reacting, that tends to be a time where I'm kind of unhappy. So I think a lot of it comes back to control, having control over the work that you're doing, why you're doing it and where you're trying to get to. That's probably easier for me as a leader that's running my own organization. But I think everyone should have that. You know, the role of a leader should be to provide that for each of their employees, that they have the autonomy and the control to find the way to make those happen that fits best with their way of working and that fits best with their skills. If we can get to there, we're going to build happier organizations. Absolutely. You're hitting the nail on the head. You're speaking my language now. Autonomy is a huge part of that forms a huge part of the work that I do. It's one of our basic psychological needs. So feeling this sense of choice and control over what you do and how you do it. And it ties into everything that we've been talking about today, I think, in relation to reduced working hours. So thank you. We appreciate you sharing that. If people would like to connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? So our website is worktimereduction.com. We're on LinkedIn at Worktime Reduction Center of Excellence. They can find me as Joe O'Connor on LinkedIn. Also, would be happy to connect with people who'd like to chat some more. We also have a free assessment tool on our website for anyone that's thinking about the shorter working week, would like to explore it. It's a 24-question survey that's based on a, a behavioral profiling tool we use, which is a balanced approach looking at your culture your operations and processes, your people, um, and also innovation in the future. Um, it's a good way to get you thinking about what are the kinds of things that are necessary? What are the conditions that are necessary in order to make a shorter working week project work? Um, and that's something that I'd encourage people to, to fill out. They can book a consultation with us directly through that, through that tool as well. Brilliant. That's great. Thank you so much. I absolutely love this conversation, Joe. I was not disappointed. I knew at the start we were going to get into the, the nitty gritty of making the work time reduction a reality. So really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Aoife. Appreciate it. That was Joe O'Connor talking all things work time reduction. And I really hope you took a lot from today's episode. If you want to share your own thoughts about what you took from today, any of the key learnings or any experiences that you have in reducing the amount of time that you spend at work, I would absolutely love to hear from you. You can connect with me on social media. The main places I am would be on LinkedIn and Instagram. And you'll find all of my social media links on the website happieratwork.ie. And I look forward to connecting with you. Now, as a reminder, one of the first things that Joe mentioned was this idea of Parkinson's law. And that's the idea that work expands to the amount of time that we have to do the work. So if you are given two weeks to do something, then you will take all of that two weeks. Whereas if you're given two days to do something, then you can get it done a lot quicker. Joe also shared that it seems counterintuitive that we would be able to actually get more done in less time. But the really successful people who are doing this right, it's about thinking of time as a scarce resource, rethinking the way we work, putting a constraint on the time that we have to work and therefore streamlining and putting processes in place 
and automating things as well. He mentioned that the shift to the four-day week surfaced a lot of problems that were already in existence as opposed to causing those problems itself. It just brought to light some of the inefficiencies that existed in organisations, but it created this type of positive tension. Now, the key area that Joe mentioned as well in relation to starting this type of process is having the right culture in place. You need to have leadership buy-in. So this really, really comes from the top. There needs to be a great sense of trust in the organization and a sense of partnership as well. And having that type of bottom-up decision-making where you include employees in that decision-making as well. Um, I think that's really the core of what will make this successful. We touched on the idea of job design or redesigning how we work. And Again, some of the things to consider when you're looking at reducing working hours is the poor use of technology currently. So are there some areas where we can put in automations, better processes, if there's repeatable tasks, all of those kind of things. And the other area then is meetings. So again, Joe highlighted that it's not about taking something that was a meeting and then transferring it on to, say, a, a Slack platform. It's really about considering whether we need to do this in the first place and what is the purpose behind it as well. We talked about the simple fact of going through this process for looking for efficiencies gives people an improved sense of job quality because they're removing the low value or the no value tasks that form part of their day to day. So the majority of what people end up doing is high value tasks that are really contributing to the organization's objectives. One of the challenges that was highlighted, or rather the differences, if you like, between, say, just looking for 20% efficiencies versus bringing people together on this journey, not looking to be 20% more efficient, but looking to reduce the amount of time that they're working by 20% and therefore, as a result, having to seek out 20% more efficiency in the business. So it's the difference between on the one hand, it's just doing it for the sake of doing it. And on the other hand, it's doing it with a collective benefit. We talked also about the benefit of leaders and the importance of having leaders controlling the direction of travel. So monitoring what's going on, making sure to seek out feedback and to provide feedback throughout this entire process. We talked about compressed hours as as a common view of the four day working week. So instead of working for ease of calculation, I'm going to say 40 hours over five days, we're doing 40 hours over four days. So four 10 hour days. And this is the perception a lot of people have of what the four day week is, but it doesn't necessarily translate for knowledge workers because working 10 hours a day can lead to burnout. So it's not good for the well-being of the staff to work in that kind of compressed hours environment. But typically speaking, it's about reducing the amount of hours that we spend at work. So going from a 40 hour week to a 32 hour week over four days. Most of the time when this type of initiative fails, it's because of the failure of the processes and the systems that are in place as opposed to anything else. And we talked about the companies who didn't quite get the get the remote working model or the hybrid working model right. They are reverting to type now and they're demanding that people come back into the office because they haven't quite figured out how to manage in that hybrid situation. 
One of the key quotes I took then from the episode today is how can we achieve the same level of outputs with reduced inputs? And I think that's something, whether you're looking to reduce the amount of time you're working or not, I think that's something that everyone can benefit from going through that process. We brought up the elephant in the room, and that is the fact that real estate is a sunk cost. So there, you know, let's be real. There are businesses out there who have paid in advance to have that real estate. And that could be part of the driving factor for wanting people to come back into the office. Joe brought up another one of the really important principles in relation to this. So even beyond Parkinson's law, we have this Pareto principle. So 80% of your work is going to be achieved by 20% of the time, essentially. So the 80-20 rule. He mentioned that we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable because not everything can be perfect and there might be that level of tension when we're trying to do. And it's not the be all and end all. It's not the answer to everything. We need to be very mindful of boundaries, resetting boundaries and having really, really clear expectations. One of the things or one of the other things that can get in the way with this, and he mentioned a particular client of his, that it's the distractions that happen. So it's the task switching, it's the flow switching, and it's feeling the need to respond in real time. So that's where it's really important to have those boundaries and setting clear expectations with people. We touched briefly on the idea that AI can be used to automate tasks and there's huge scope for efficiencies in organizations by using AI. I'm seeing that more and more in my own business as well. On the other hand, there are some companies who are using tech more mindfully, so they're not necessarily relying always on technology. They want to reduce the amount of technology that they're using as well. And finally, we talked about agency type of work. Uh, So that's familiar to me. That's my own background. I always worked in agencies. So agency type of work or accountancy firms or law firms where client work is essentially billed by hour. So you're billing by hour rather than billing by project. And so it may be a little bit harder to get that type of mentality across the line. But this is how I see the future of work that it's by project, that it's by quality. And it's really only because it's tradition and culture that it's always been that way. It's always been done that way. Um, Joe mentioned two ways in particular in order to achieve that type of work reduction in that type of situation. So number one is finding efficiencies in the non-billable time. So are there some areas that you can be more efficient in that non-billable time? And the second is look at the way that they're billing. So finding alternative billing structures That could be by project, by quality, um, various different options there. And by not switching to this new way of working, companies are going to have an issue with retention and unsustainable working. So leading to to burnout and, and things like that. That's it for today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. And do let me know what you thought across on social media. You can find all the links through the website happieratwork.ie. And thank you so much for tuning in today. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. And if you've made it this far, well done you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to today's episode. If you did enjoy it, please consider leaving a rating, a review or share it with a friend. I would love for you to get involved in the conversation. And also, if you'd like to know more about how I can help you or your business, head on over to happieratwork.ie.